is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Monday, the 13th day of November 2023. You know, I've always wondered about people that are, uh, you know, worried about Friday the 13th. You've got the weekend to recover. It's Monday the thirteenth. You you got no relief until Friday. So here you are. Um, actually, the the whole thing behind Friday the thirteenth is that was the date on which the uh, Pope and the French Crown turned upon the Knights Templar. Um, and one of the most interesting uh, incidents of the Middle Ages. Um, but that's not our topic today. But maybe we'll make that a topic one of these days. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and anything else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the audio is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there, doctrinally sound, informative, entertaining, and you will find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. So what do we got coming up today? We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Monday Meanderings. So we've got some topics of discussion this morning regarding current events. Oh, there's stuff to talk about. You know there is. All right, let us begin, as is our practice, with a sip of coffee. My coffee cup is just about empty. I am going to pull out my thermos. You get to hear the squeak as I remove the lid of my thermos, followed by that hiss as the pressure equalizes. And I am pouring a cup of coffee. I'll move off to the side so in case I dribble a little bit, it doesn't go on my keyboard. That's a bad thing. It's easy to wipe up off the desk. It's not easy to wipe up off the keyboard. (laughs) sparks and all. Yeah, not a good thing. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, and now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is entitled, Wrong Reasons for Prayer. When you are pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on street corners, so that they may be seen by men. 
Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Matthew 6, 5. Dr. MacArthur writes, Over the centuries, various questionable practices and attitudes have affected the prayer life of God's people. Ritualization, prescription prayers, limitations of time and place, the love of long prayers, and meaningless repetitions. But the worst fault was when God's people prayed mainly to be noticed by others, especially by fellow Jews. This fault was inherently sinful because it originated from and helped intensify pride. Such an evil, self-glorifying motive was and is the ultimate perversion of God's gift of prayer, which is intended to glorify Him, John 14, 13, and express our dependence on His grace. Prayer that focuses on self is always hypocritical. It stands in sharp contrast to true prayer, which focuses on God. Hypocrites are simply actors, persons playing a role, as the Greeks did on stage with their large masks. What such persons do and say is seldom sincere, but merely designed to create an image. The scribes and Pharisees' prayers served the same purpose as so many of their activities, to draw praise and honor to themselves. This is the type of righteousness that has no place in the kingdom of God. See Matthew 5.20. The more sacred something is, such as prayer, the more Satan wants to profane it. And one way to do that is to inject pride and self-centeredness into prayer. To get believers to pray as the Pharisees did. So, if you pray to be impressive to fellow believers, you are praying for the wrong reason. Ask yourself, what should be the tone and purpose of public prayer? Should it be any different from your private interactions with God? What could you do to help make sure you are addressing God and not your audience? Oh, always a timely word about prayer and pride and all of that. Good to have. All right, it is Monday, so we got Monday meanderings. I have, uh, well, I guess first, it's Grizz Cat Week here in the Piney Woods. This coming Saturday, the University of Montana Grizzlies and the Montana State Bobcats will meet upon the football gridiron for the 122nd time. Yeah, it's the big rivalry. And it's an important game this year because the winner of this game is the conference champion. And we got playoffs looming. This is the last regular season game. And both teams have been playing well. <laughs> and the winner of this game will be the Big Sky champion. And uh, probably both teams are heading into the playoffs, just to be sure. But uh, it's just, it's one of those, uh, it's going to be a powerhouse, powerhouse versus powerhouse. We're going to have have two very good football teams on the field Saturday. Um, obviously, as you can tell from the shirt I'm wearing, I am a Grizz. Attended the University of Montana, met Mrs. Squirrel at the University of Montana, um, and and we are Grizz football season ticket holders and have been for almost two decades. And my parents had tickets in that stadium since it was built. Um, so whenever in the 80s they built Washington Grizzly Stadium, um, named Washington Grizzly because of it was constructed with large donations from Denny Washington, who lives in Missoula. It had nothing to do with... Uh, Denny is, in fact, a believer, as is his wife. Um, I'm not a friend of his. Uh, he's in his 80s. I don't know how old he is. Not a young man. Um, 
but construction company, railroad, shipping, uh, container ships and stuff. Um, they're very much involved in, in industry, but uh, I have a, a friend who uh, who knows Denny well, and so that yeah, he has he has actually accepted Christ. So that is that is good news. Um, but uh, Denny Washington donated a lot of money to the University of Montana for the building of the stadium, which is why it's Washington Grizzly Stadium. Um, and, and it's Washington Grizzly Stadium. We call it Wa Grizz. <laughs> Um, and so this is that, that stadium was built in the eighties. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, I remember attending games there when it first opened and, uh, the seating capacity was probably half of what it is now, maybe even less than that. They've expanded the North, the, the end zones used to just be a grass, grass slope down to the field. And, and you could buy cheap tickets and just sit on the grass and watch the football game from the end zones. And you had grandstands on on both the east and west side. Well, then they built in the north end zone, and then the south end zone, and then the north end zone got an upper deck, and then the east grandstand got an upper deck. So that the the capacity is twenty seven thousand, twenty eight thousand, something like that. Um, I don't know. I think. Well, I think that. Official seating capacity is in the 25,000. And I think our record attendances have been 26-something. Um, but, I mean, that's a lot of people. That's, if, you know, that Missoula, I think uh, inside the city limits, Missoula is about 80,000. So you're talking about a third of the population of the city descend on it on Saturdays to fill that stadium during football season. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And this is a big rivalry. It's one of the oldest rivalries in the nation. Let me give you some stats. The uh, first, uh, let's see, first game was November 25th, 1897. Montana won that game 18-6. to And then the last game was November 19th of last year. And Montana State won 55-21, to which we were not happy about, I assure you. So today they are meeting, or this week they're meeting in Missoula, and, and that's going to be Saturday the 18th, which is coming up. Now, they met 121 times. Montana leads the series over Montana State, 73 wins, 42 losses, and five ties. And the longest streak was um, 16 years which was 1986 to 2001, and that was an interesting, interesting time. Currently, the uh, uh, as in Montana State won last year. Um, the largest victory margin was in 1904, when Montana beat Montana State 79 to zero. That's not happening this week. <laughs> that is not happening this week at all. Um, so we'll see. It's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting game. It starts at noon on Saturday. So this is Grizz Cat Week. And so I am very much focused on the Grizz Cat game. We are looking forward to being there and that's going to be a good time. All right. Now let's widen out the focus of the discussion and talk about San Francisco. They've cleaned up all the homeless encampments in San Francisco. All for for years we've been hearing about you know 
needles on the streets and people using the streets as a bathroom and the tent cities everywhere. And we've seen the pictures and, and, and the people have been leaving San Francisco because it's just a lawless, lawless hellhole, really. And, but this last week, all of a sudden, all those homeless camps, apparently the city came through with garbage trucks and just started pitching everything, the mattresses, the tents, everything into the garbage trucks. And they offered shelter services to the now displaced homeless people whose stuff they just threw away in in a a great show of compassion. I'm going to throw all your stuff in a garbage truck Uh, because, you know, they're the compassionate ones and allowing the homeless to live on the street is the compassionate thing. It's not, but that's their, you know, that's their thing. I remember uh, Rush Limbaugh talking about there was a, a, um, oh, I, I think it was California. It may have even been San Francisco, but grocery stores were installing anti-theft devices on on shopping carts because the shopping carts were being made off with. So grocery stores were, were installing things that would lock up the wheels if the carts got too far from the grocery store. And we've all, you know, we've all seen homeless people with their stuff in a gar- in a shopping cart or buggy or trolley, whatever <laughs> they call it in your area of the country to reference a recent Twitter discussion. Um, but the shopping carts, you know, they, they, they were upset that people were stealing the shopping carts. They cost money. Well, the homeless advocates got very upset at these greedy corporation grocery stores for not allowing the homeless people to take the carts. And so this one homeless advocate started raising money so he could buy shopping carts for homeless people because that was compassion. I, I, you can't make this stuff up. How do they, how, you know, that's not compassion. Compassion is getting them the help they need to support themselves and, and work a, a, a job and be productive members of society. That's a phrase you don't hear very often anymore, but it's one that I heard growing up. Be a productive member of society meaning contribute to the society you live in. Be a giver, not a taker. And the Bible says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. And that is something that we have forgotten. And by enabling homelessness, we're not helping these people at all. Many of them do need help with mental illness. They need counseling. They need job training. They need encouragement. But they also need to be held accountable. So we've been told it was compassionate to let them live on the street. Well, these compassionate people have now driven by in garbage trucks, thrown away all their stuff, hosed all the needles and and human waste off of the sidewalks, and run the homeless people out of large sections of San Francisco. Have they done this because the people are upset? The citizens of San Francisco are upset with the condition that they have allowed the city to fall into? No, not at all. They've done this because President Biden is hosting Chinese Premier Xi Jinping at a conference in San Francisco. And so these compassionate people who have cared so much about the homeless that they have allowed them to turn San Francisco into a filthy hellhole have compassionately thrown away all the homeless people's stuff and run them out. So, but it, it shows that, you know, that it can be done. Um, and I've been thinking, because Missoula, um, 
Missoula is one of the liberal bastions in the otherwise conservative state of Montana, mainly because of the university. And Bozeman, where Montana State is, is another one, um, because our university systems are a mess. And and, and I, I'm not saying Montana, I'm saying the United States. Our universities are you know, socialist bastions that are using our tax money, you know, especially the, the state universities like Montana and Montana State, they they receive support from taxes. Their their you know board of governors and everything. It's all political, and they are liberal bastion. Um, we always often refer to Montana, and and this is my school. This is where I went to school, and it was liberal then too. Um, I had the advantage of being not a traditional student. Um, I had I had uh, lived some life between high school and college so that I was not as susceptible to the liberal mindset that was put forth by the professors. But it was there, I, and I saw it, I noticed it. But we still had, we had conservative professors too. The conservative professors are gone. Um, they've been run off. Um, the schools are dominated by liberal professors, and it's it's sad. Um, but... Even back when I was a student there in the early 90s, we were talking about the University of Montana as being Berkeley North. And and just we recognized the liberalism that existed there. And we remembered Berkeley from the 60s and 70s. And, of course, it's probably, and gosh, that's Cisco area. Isn't Berkeley right near San Francisco? Yeah, like they doesn't have a, an influence. So Missoula is the same way. It's got homeless camps everywhere. And it's just, and and we were walking, just walking from the parking garage where we park to the stadium, um, oh, probably about a four or five block walk along Missoula's beautiful riverfront trail. There are paved paths that run along both the north and south side of the Clark Fork River um, that allow easy access to different areas of town. And it's just a pretty walk. Um, but we use that riverfront trail system to go from the parking garage, um, to the stadium, got across the river. There's bridges along there for, you know, it's footbridges and it's, it's just a, it's a lovely thing. Well, as you walk along there, I count at least five or six homeless camps between the trail and the river in the, in the trees. And, you know, you never used to have that, never used to have that. Um, it used to be clean and safe. Now there's garbage everywhere. They don't clean it up. Um, you know, they don't run the people off. It's, it's just, and, and it even, it, it, it used to be a place that you felt safe at night walking along the riverfront trail. Um, cause it's well lit. They've got street lamps, all, you know, really beautiful kind of 1920s style street lamps along the paths. Um, even though you're walking through the woods in places here, these street lamps, it's kind of a Narnia-esque thing, especially in the winter when it's in the snow, you got these street lamps in the woods, but you know, it, it was, it was relatively safe. Um, not anymore. I, uh, other than leaving the stadium with 25,000 people and filling those paths, I, you know, other than that, when you have people all around you, I wouldn't feel safe there at night. And and so I've been joking that, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a really cold winter with lots of snow. Maybe get some of these people to, to vacate the area because um, they're not working. They're not 
you know, they have no desire to work. They have no, you know, it's, and I, I actually, gosh, 15 years ago, I drove taxi one winter and we knew there, there were, you know, you had the, the cheap hotels, the, the, that were kind of residential hotels and you had the people that were living on public assistance. Didn't have the, the homeless numbers we have now because things have changed it's 15 years ago. But you had, you know, uh, uh, well, not the homeless. You had a large number of people on public assistance. And they would get their government checks first of the month. And for the first week of every month, they were calling taxis all the time. I had one guy spend $30 to drive for the taxi. That was his, to drive three blocks from the hotel he lived at to a convenience store to buy a couple of cases of beer. A, an easy walk. I mean, we're not talking miles and miles and miles. We're talking three, four blocks. And he spent $30 on a taxi. And for that first week, you got all sorts of calls. And it was, and I worked, I worked, the day shift. I worked the morning shift. I wasn't a late night guy. So that first week of every month was really the only time I had to deal with bar calls because the bars all open at, I think, I think Montana law allows you to start serving alcohol at 8 a.m. Um, they have to stop serving at 2 a.m. And so I would come to work and my, my first things at work were always airport calls that, you know, they're great. You'd go pick people up, take them to the airport, good customers, business people flying out, heading to places, or families even going on vacation. It was usually a pleasant thing. You'd load up their luggage, take them to the airport. You know, they tipped well. They were, they were, that was always a good thing. And I had a couple of people that I would take to work regularly, um, who for various reasons didn't drive. Um, and so I had, you know, a couple of early morning work runs, and then... You know, up at eight o'clock, that first week of the month, we'd start getting calls to pick people up at these residential hotels and take them to what we called the Bermuda Triangle. There's a seven or eight block area of downtown Missoula that has over 20 bars in it. And so that was the Bermuda Triangle. And it actually is triangular. If you, the, the way the, the mountain and the, the river are, the, the, uh, the, the downtown area kind of pinches off to the west, so it is a triangle. And so we called that the Bermuda Triangle. Front Street, Front Street, and Patty Street, and Railroad Street. You had 21 bars in this five, six block area. Well, the first week of the first week of the month, we'd be getting calls to, you know, take people to the bar. Or we'd get calls to one of the bars to take them to another bar that's like a block and a half away because they're all right there. I mean, it was, but that first week, they just spent money like crazy. Then they're broke again because they spent all their money. And so you wouldn't see them for three weeks. Then the first week of the month, you'd be getting all these calls again as they were spending their government assistance checks. And, you know, I mean, sometimes there were some that you took to grocery stores and stuff like that. But, and these were not, these were not families that were destitute. These were not, you know, single moms trying to raise their kids. These were 
for the most part, men in their 30s and 40s with no jobs, no prospects, nothing but addiction. And and we were enabling them to feed their addictions in, instead of helping them get over them, we as a society. And yes, I did take opportunities to witness, um, tried to share the gospel, didn't get much response, as you can imagine. But it was a it's a sad, sad situation. And, and you know, there's a, we, we're enabling them. And nobody wants people to starve to death. Nobody wants people to freeze to death. But we can't enable them to just you know, freeload off society. It's not good for them. And it's not good for society. Um, and so, but they've cleaned up San Francisco, which shows that they could have done it the whole while. And as I said, we don't want people to starve to death. But at the same time, Hunger is a good motivator to get off your butt and get a job. And and it, it's, you know, you say one thing about so many of these illegal immigrants. A lot of them at least come here to work. And they, they, they work the, I mean, I've driven through rural areas of California at harvest time. And I've seen the, the buses out in the fields with all the migrant workers out picking the crop. And I imagine a lot of them are illegals, but they're working, and I respect that. But we have a we have a class of people who have no acquaintance with work at all, and that's a that's a sad sad. All right, what else we got going on? Well, last Tuesday we had an election, an off year election, um, and it did not go the way that uh, conservatives wanted it to go. Governor Yunkin in Virginia was hoping to keep the House and take the, the Senate in the state of Virginia from the Democrats. Not only did he fail to take the Senate, he lost the House. So now General or Governor Youngkin does not have um, really any pull with the legislature. So it's going to be an interesting couple of years for him. You remember he came to power unexpectedly to the Democrats, he, he won the, the governor election two years, a couple of years ago. And he did it because of all the stuff that was going on in the Virginia schools. Um, there had been, you know, a, a boy who said he was a girl, raped a girl in a, in a school bathroom. And the school board had the girl's father arrested because he was mad at the school board meeting. And the the school board covered up the rape or tried to to the point where they just transferred this kid to another school where he raped another girl in the school bathroom because he was a girl so he was allowed in the girls room oh the madness the madness well that was what swept governor yunkin into power and that's what swept the republicans into power in the virginia state house um but the 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 failure to consolidate the power and now they've lost the the state house, and so Governor Yunkin is going to be a lone voice in Virginia for a couple of couple of years. Um, Virginia is an interesting case because it it it's one of those places you would think would be conservative, but it's just south of Washington D.C. Northern Virginia is the home of the rich men north of Richmond. <laughs> a lot of the people that live and work in uh, that work in Washington D.C. live in Northern Virginia, and the governing class in the United States is very leftist, and so there has been quite a push 
um, to the left in Virginia. So we'll need to keep an eye on that. Um, the, the, the other thing, big thing that happened was, uh, you know, uh, the, the GOP failed to unseat the Kentucky, the Democrat governor of Kentucky, um, in a, a close race. The, the governor won reelection. And, and the thing is, and this is one thing I want to point out, all of these elections were really close. They were within a few percentage points. And so, you know, keep that in mind. Um, the other thing, there was a constitutional amendment, uh, an amendment to the Ohio state constitution that not only um, enshrined the right to an abortion in the Ohio constitution, but also made Ohio the most permissive state in regard to child sexual mutilation, the whole transgender sex change thing. They've, they've really curtailed parental rights in this amendment. So that's a very ugly deal. And, and that's something that, that conservatives really need to focus on repealing. Start the fight now. Don't, don't say, oh, we lost. And, just, and, and this is the whole thing. The election turnout was low. The, the, the off-year elections are, are, usually, are much lower than, than uh, there's, there's the most turnout, and it's still low. It's only like 40%. The most turnout that we see in a typical election cycle is every four years when the president is being elected. The next highest turnout is every two years when you have House and Senate races going on. Now, those are on even-numbered years. You know, 2024 is presidential year. Um, but there are a few elections that are on odd-numbered years. And that's, you know, either it's a special election to fill a vacant office, or it's like Virginia, the entire Virginia State House was up. Their cycle is just not lined up with the federal election. And, you know, and that's perfectly fine for them. But what we saw was a low turnout. Um, and it, in most areas, it was it seemed to have been in the high, high 20%, low 30% of eligible voters. Some places might have gotten into the high 30%, which is approaching the, the every two-year congressional election. So the voter turnout was really, really low. And of the people that turned out, there were more Democrats than Republicans. There were more liberals than conservatives. And a lot of the problem that I see is the GOP is not organized. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Vivek Ramaswamy. I, I don't trust him. There's a vibe he gives off that that I just don't don't have a lot of confidence in him. Now, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to get the nomination. We know that. Um, I don't even think he's going to end up with the, you know, number two slot. But he said something in the last debate, which I think was Wednesday or Thursday, that, you know, the chairwoman of the GOP, Ronna McDaniel, has fallen down on the job. And she has. The, the, the National Republican Party didn't spend any money in any of these races. You know, they, they let, now my understanding is that, you know, somebody said that, that Yunkin didn't want federal, um, didn't want help from the National Party in Virginia. Well, that was a mistake on his part, if that's indeed true. But, you know, I, I do know when he ran for governor, he did not want Donald Trump to campaign with, um, because 
he's in a you know, the northern Virginia is that Washington D.C. suburb, and and the political class hates President Trump, as we're seeing from all of these legal woes that he's facing. But uh, but I you know I've talked to or seen interviews. I haven't talked to people personally, but I've seen interviews with people in Ohio. You know I know some people in Ohio. I should call them. But I've seen some interviews from from people in Ohio who said you know they never got the, any kind of you know, calls from the Republicans. or to, There was no big get-out-the-vote effort going on in Ohio. Um, the Democrats had a big get-out-the-vote thing. The Republicans didn't. And so the Democrats outnumbered the Republicans, and the Republicans lost. So I am not despairing over this from a political sense. I do not believe, in all honesty, I do not believe that hardcore liberals outnumber political conservatives in the United States. And I think when the message is gotten out, the Republicans seem to win. As um, Rush Limbaugh used to say, conservatism works every time it's tried. And the trouble with so many Republicans is they're not conservatives. And the party is schizophrenic regarding, are they liberal, are they conservative, are they moderate? And so you don't have, you know, a unified and and I mean I'm not happy with the Republican Party, and a lot of people aren't happy with the Republican Party. Um, a lot of conservatives are not happy with the Republican Party, and a lot of people in the Republican Party are indistinguishable from the Democrats. Those that are in government, um, they may say different things, but when you look at their voting records and you look at the things they're doing, they're not all that different. So we've got a, a disorganized, schizophrenic GOP, and we need a strong hand at the helm, not Ronna McDaniel, who's Mitt Romney's daughter. Um, you know, we didn't. Mitt Romney's not a good Republican, and neither is his daughter. I mean, the only thing worse than having Ronna McDaniel as head of the GOP would be to put Liz Cheney in there, uh, just to give you an idea. So the GOP needs to get their poop in a pile. They need to to get get it together because. We're going into a presidential election, and it's going to be a hard-fought one. And we need to, whoever the the nominee is, we need to have a unified party. But not only, not even just unified, we need to have an active party. We need to have, and, and I'm not a Republican, I'm an independent, um, but I, I'm because I am a conservative, I find myself often allied with Republican candidates. And... Now, full disclosure, I have been a card-carrying member of the Republican Party in the past, but I am not a member of any political party now. But I, I you know, they've got to, they've got to organize. They've got to be active. They've got to be, they've got to educate. That's that's one of the biggest things that that nobody really knows what conservatism is, and that's an issue. That's a big issue. So don't don't be too down about. The election losses, I mean, some of them are, you know, that thing in Ohio is just heart-wrenching. But don't, that's not the be-all and end-all. It wasn't a, you know, everybody's talking about it was a huge victory for the Democrats. The margin of victory wasn't that big in any of these states. And yes, they made some huge gains. And yes, it's going to cause problems down the road. Um, but it wasn't, you know, 
Ronald Reagan winning 49 out of 50 states. It wasn't a huge win. So we need to, you know, don't lose heart. Um, stand for what's right. And, and we need to teach people what conservatism is. And that's that's that. All right. Other news. Well, we talked last week about Ken Mattingly passing away. Um, and then uh, on the November 7th, Frank Borman passed away, which was last Tuesday. Um, I didn't hear the news until Thursday or Friday. Um, but he passed away at age 95 at his home in Billings, Montana, where he has lived. Well, I think he died at a hospital. He's been living in Billings, Montana since 1998. So he's, I, I did not know he had moved to Montana until I was reading the articles. It's like he died in Billings and then realized he had moved up here from Arizona in 1998. But Frank Borman was part of the second class of astronauts. He was brought in for the Gemini mission. So he wasn't one of the Mercury 7. He was the, the, I think they called him the second nine. Same class as Armstrong and, and Aldrin and all those guys. And so he was, you know, he flew Gemini. He flew on Gemini 7. And then he was instrumental in the investigation of the Apollo 1 fire. Um, and... So, you know, and all the changes that were made to the Apollo spacecraft to make it safer after the fire. Um, and, and of course, the fire took the, the life of the three crewmen in a launch pad test. Um, and there were all sorts of problems that, you know, things that he found and, and stuff that stuff that was considered non-flammable that turned out in a pressurized 100% oxygen environment turned out to be highly flammable. Um, but you know, killed the the crew of the of the Apollo One, and he was Frank Borman was a key individual on the investigation of that fire, and making recommendations to improve the safety. Also testified before Congress, and kept the um, space program alive because um, Fritz Mondale wanted to use the Apollo One fire to destroy the Apollo program, and Frank Borman kind of stood up to him. Um, but that was a that was a key event in his career with NASA. And then he flew on Apollo 8, which was the first Apollo flight around the moon. Um, I believe he was mission commander of Apollo 8. But he flew with uh, Bill Anders and, and Ken Lovell around the moon on Christmas Eve of 1960. And they, they famously ended their Christmas Eve broadcast from the capsule by reading from Genesis chapter 1 and then wishing everyone a, a Merry Christmas. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's he passed away this last Tuesday at age 95. Um, and so, once again, we are seeing memory become history as the people who lived it and the people who remember it firsthand are rapidly leaving the scene. And so much of the history... The, the, the events that I grew up with as a child, because I was, when they circled the moon, I was four years old. And, you know, I was, actually I was three years old. I was four years old when they landed on the moon. And I remember that, because dad, dad had us all in front of the TV to watch Neil Armstrong's first steps. And I can picture the room, the green carpet, the dark wood, the house in Dunwoody in Atlanta which has been torn down, and there's like three or four houses where our house was. We had a big yard and everything. We were out, you know, we were out of town 
outside of Atlanta, and now it's a it's a highly developed suburb. Um, and like I said, there are three or four McMansions where our house and yard stood. Um, Dad built me the best treehouse, fully enclosed with a roof, and and had a ladder you could pull up that folded up flat against the bottom of the treehouse. It was very cool. Very cool. It was a great place for sleepovers in the summer. So Frank Borman has passed away, and and so I'm I'm seeing you know my heroes passing away and and history fading away. And once again, reading through uh, you know, on a sad note, reading through his biography, his his uh, obituaries that I've seen, I'm seeing no mention of that's heartbreaking. Apart from salvation and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind has no hope, and it doesn't matter how important you were on this earth. When you die, you stand before your maker, and it's not how many headlines you were in, and it's not what you accomplished politically or scientifically or you know, being a great explorer or an astronaut, any of that. It's what did you do with Jesus? Again, I, I, I hope that he knew the Lord, but there's no mention of it in any of the obituaries that I read. Well, Tim Scott has ended his run to be the 2024 Republican nominee for president. So to my knowledge, this is the second candidate to drop out. Mike Pence dropped out a couple of weeks ago. Now Tim Scott is dropping out. And so we're seeing the the also-ran category start to diminish. Um, And it's, I mean, according to the polls... And polls, the, the opinion polls and stuff are not actual votes. But according to the polls, um, President Trump is still way in the lead. And every time his legal woes are in the headlines, because everybody recognizes the fact that these are all political persecutions. They're not legal prosecutions. They're political persecution. Every time they make the headlines, his support goes up. And so... Unless something monumentous happened, I foresee Donald Trump being the Republican nominee. Um, and so if he does win the nominee, I'm going to be behind him 110%. Um, indeed, I'm going to be behind, I'd even be behind Nikki Haley 110% over a Democrat. She's far from perfect, um, entirely too soft on abortion for my taste, but compared to Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama or the unlikely event that Joe Biden actually runs, um, she would be a better choice because we'd be stronger on national defense and upon the economy. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, shoot myself in the foot because I don't like, you know, I disagree with her on issues. And, and I think I've said before, my first choice would be Ron DeSantis. He's run a horrible campaign. He's had the wrong advisors. He's not stood out the way he should have based upon his record. And a lot of that has to do with the advisors he surrounded himself with. And so his campaign has has not run well. Um, but he would be my first choice as far as who I think would be the best president. Um, he is a true conservative. Trump is not a true conservative. And this is something we need to remember. Trump is a populist. Trump has some great ideas. Trump did fantastic things his first term. Um, And if he gets in again, I think it would be beneficial for our country, especially over what we've had for the last three years. But um, he is not a conservative ideologue on a lot of stuff. 
and I would like to, but boy, he came out with a with a proposal over the weekend about dealing with the illegal aliens that just had me standing up and cheering. It's like, yes. One of the things that he wants to do is challenge the idea that just because you're born here, you're a citizen. Because if your parents are not here legally, the fact that you're born here shouldn't make you a, a citizen. If your parents are here legally, yes, sure. But if your parents, you know, they, they call them anchor babies, where they'll, they'll sneak a pregnant woman across the, the border. She gives birth here. Now she can't be deported because her her infant child is a U.S. citizen. And then they use that to bring in more family. Uh, It's just, it's not, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the things he wants to change. He would, he would, he's talking about, you know, doing mass roundups and deportations, which is the, the, I think all but, I I listened to, uh, to uh, Ted Cruz last week, and he was talking about the numbers of illegal immigrants and the number of illegal immigrants that have entered the country since Joe Biden has become president. So we're looking at, you know, just over two years. It's January of 20, you know, January of 21 was when he took office. And it's now December of 23. So it's just been a couple of years, almost, you know, three years. He, the, so many illegals have entered the country that exceed the population of all but 12 states. You know, the population of Montana, where I live, is a million people, give or take. And it's, what, 11 million, 8 million, 9 million, something like that. Uh, Ted Cruz gave the figure. There was so many that they know have come across, and then there's been a couple of million gotaways that they don't even have a record of that they weren't able to apprehend. But a lot of these people are being apprehended and then let go in our country when they're here illegally. But it's, you know, all but 12 states. The population of all but 12 states, not collectively, but individually, you know, which is ridiculous, just absolutely ridiculous. And it's it's a problem. And so, you know, he came, Donald Trump came out with a with a plan to deport and and all of that, which, you know, like I said, I would I was listening to it on the radio and it had me cheering. Um, I haven't I wasn't listening to his rally. I was just listening to a reporter talk about it. And it's like, yes, that's what we need. All right. Well, that's our Monday meandering. Some of the stuff we're looking at. Um, it's 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 we we do live in interesting times. <laughs> Let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. The Collect for the Renewal of Life. O God, the King Eternal, 
whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning. Drive far from us all wrong desires. Incline our hearts to keep your law and guide our feet into the way of peace that, having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the colic for the unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them, by your word and Holy Spirit, a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Monday. I wish you the very best of Mondays as you get your week started. Remember, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.